Just a reminder that Stats and Stories is running its data visualization contest to celebrate its 300th episode. You can grab data about the show to analyze and submit your entry at statsandstories.net slash contest. Your entry has to be there by June 30th. The spread of misinformation is of increasing interest to researchers around the world. It's been tied to the 2016 and 2020 U.S. elections, Brexit, the COVID pandemic, and the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Some have called the glut of misinformation a pandemic in its own right. A researcher at Cambridge University suggests that, as with other pandemics, the solution just might be a vaccine. That's the focus of this episode of Stats and Stories, where we explore the statistics behind the stories and the stories behind the statistics. I'm Rosemary Pennington. Stats and Stories is a production of Miami University's Departments of Statistics and Media, Journalism, and Film, as well as the American Statistical Association. Joining me is regular panelist John Baylor, Emeritus Professor of Statistics from Miami University. Our guest today is Sander Vanderlinden. Vanderlinden is Professor of Social Psychology and Society in the Department of Psychology at the University of Cambridge and director of the Cambridge Social Decision-Making Lab. His research interests center around the psychology of human judgment, communication, and decision-making. In particular, he's interested in the influence and persuasion process and how people gain resistance to persuasion by misinformation through psychological inoculation. That's the focus of his new book, Full Proof, Why Misinformation Affects Our Minds and How to Build Immunity. Sander, thank you so much for joining us today. So excited to be on the show. Oh, that, that's, that's not fake news, is it? You know, as I was going through your book, I've I really been enjoying it. And I, I, I love how, how you end it. Because I, as someone who, who aspired to think about being a data self-defense teacher, the fact that you were aspiring yeah. to be a defense against dark arts teacher really spoke to me, Sandra. So, so, uh, <laughs> and, and I think your book, your book does a great job at, at trying to, to paint that that picture. So just before we kind of dive into some, some of the specific details, could you give us a little bit of, of a framing or a structure to the way that you, you've organized your thinking in, in writing Foolproof? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, when I was trying to conceptualize this book, um, I was thinking about the way that misinformation spreads and how it affects people. And I ended up dividing the book into three parts. And the first part um, is really about why the brain is susceptible to misinformation, why are we susceptible. Um, and every part of the book also follows the, the viral analogy. So the viral analogy runs throughout the book. And the first part, kind of, you know, just as viruses hijack cells with the aim of taking over some of their machinery to try to reproduce themselves, um, the same really is true for, for misinformation. And it can distort people's memories, it can control um, some of what we think, um, and also has the goal of, of replicating itself. Um, and then I look at how it spreads online um, in social networks, but also some of the, the history behind the spread of, of disinformation. Um, and again, here, there's these interesting analogies where we can use models from epidemiology that are used to, to study how viruses spread to actually, you know, use them in a fairly unaltered way to study how misinformation spreads in, in social networks. And then the third part of the book, where I kind of come to the conclusion that if well, if misinformation behaves and spreads like a virus, 
maybe we can inoculate or vaccinate people against it. And that's where I kind of outline all of the research that we've been doing on on that front. And that's kind of how the book came about. Could you walk us through how you conceptualize misinformation and how that might compare to, to disinformation, which is another term that gets used a lot, and fake news? Yeah, that's a great question. And I want to be nuanced about this, you know, given how politicized the term misinformation uh, in itself has become. So, you know, I, I define misinformation as anything that's that's either false or misleading in some way. And that could just be due to simple errors, right? So it's not necessarily intentional. Whereas disinformation is misinformation coupled with some psychological intention to deceive or, or harm other people. And then I should, you know, I should caveat by saying, okay, but who decides what is misinformation? You know, I'm more focused on this idea of helping people calibrate their judgments in terms of how reliable or trustworthy a piece of content is based on the presence or absence of misleading techniques rather than telling people what's true or false necessarily. But certainly we have some ground truths that, um, you know, that, that we can all relate to uh, that can help us discern whether or not a piece of information is false or not, whether it's expert consensus or science or fact checkers uh, or any other established means of reaching some conclusions about the nature of, uh, of truth. One of the things that I found really interesting in the book was this, I can't remember what, which section it's in, where you discuss, um, I think in relation to maybe climate change, where the existence of a skeptic made people f feel more like the debate more, was more fair or something, you know, just regardless of the truth, right? The feel, the fact that there was a skeptic, skeptic voice, made it seem like um, maybe whatever they were hearing yeah. was trustworthy. Could you talk about that? The importance of the skeptic in in relation to that? Yeah. So, um, you know, in journalism, for some time there had been this this norm, which sometimes is a good norm of uh, of balance that you always have to have a another viewpoint in a story, um, and that can be a good heuristic for journalists because you know they don't, you know, it's not good to always just kind of promote the views of one particular expert. But sometimes that heuristic can 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 really go wrong um, when we're comparing what one scientist is saying about the scientific consensus on, let's say, the safety of vaccines or climate change to that of a contrarian, because it gives people the perception that there's an even keeled debate happening, right? That there is balance, while in fact, there is weight of evidence that overwhelmingly points in one direction. And though, you know, we have some rules for trustworthy communication that we work on. And one of those rules is to, to give people balance, but not false balance. And so in, in situations where, you know, with, with medical procedures, there, there are harms and benefits and you have to outline those for people. Right. But when we talk about things like scientific consensus, what happens in people's minds is that they hear two voices debating what should be happening is that, you know, we hear one voice say something and then ideally the other voice should sound like thousands of voices uh, in our head saying the same thing, right? That there's thousands of independent scientists who have concluded something, um, but that's not what's happening. You know, that's not what's happening. People only hear two voices and they, they perceive um, that there is a, a balanced debate. Um, and that misrepresentation of the weight of science and evidence, I think, is hugely problematic in, in the media. And it's not just fringe outlets. I mean, the BBC had a whole report on, on, and they apologized for this. And this is also what I think distinguishes legitimate outlets that have editorial norms and, and can own up to a mistake and say, look, we have good journalistic practices. We made an error. Now we're going to move on from outlets that are, that are fringe and have no norms and keep producing misinformation. So the BBC 
also participated in propping up contrarians for a long time uh, in confusing people about climate. They've admitted to this and they've stopped doing that. And I think that's also what differentiates trustworthy from non-trustworthy outlets. Yeah, having the different perspectives, but ha but that not being equal weighting on those is is really it's the is the nuanced but critical part of that of that story is, as you described yeah. it. You know, you were one thing I really liked about the 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 book was the frequent the frequency that that you've kind of in, infused the uh, stories of history throughout. I mean, and you know, while while certainly the the sense of of kind of the maliciousness of propaganda comes up as we think about. Uh, World War II and and the, the Nazi uh, efforts in that regard, you you push this back even to stories of of Roman times. So could could you kind of you know take us back to sort of one of the the early greatest hits of fake news? You know, when I was writing the book, I always felt this sense of like people are going to wonder how is this different from the past? Haven't politicians always you know, aren't they always lying to us and? And, and I thought about maybe I should try to give people a historical comparison uh, throughout the book to try to sort of benchmark and see what's, what's happening. And the furthest I could trace some of these disinformation campaigns was, uh, was to, the, to the Roman Empire. It goes back further, but the evidence, you know, I, I've, I've, uh, I've attained a new appreciation for historians in trying to ascertain the factual validity of references from the Roman era and, and debate among historians about who wrote what and who said what. So, you know, for a book on misinformation, I tried to be as accurate as possible. So, you know, these are often called the Infowars of Rome, where Julius you know, Caesar was assassinated. Um, that was a real conspiracy, by the way. And so the, the senators, you know, conspired to, to take him down because he was gaining too much influence. Um, and then Mark Antony, and uh, Augustus' um, kind of adopted uh, grandson were at war uh, over who was going to, you know, pursue his his legacy and, and take the reins. And they both instituted what would now be described as, as really, you know, sophisticated disinformation campaigns. And I refer to some of their tactics as a, an archaic tweet. And so Augustus... Uh, uh, had coins minted with his slogans on it um, to try to convince the public that he was the true uh, heir. And they use some of the same techniques that are used now. For example, you know, he would say that uh, Antony was, uh, you know, he ran off to Egypt with Cleopatra. And so he was this this outsider. Uh, and, uh, you know, he, you know, he he was he, he was bewitched. Uh, by this by this woman and under the influence and Romans couldn't trust him. And, you know, there was this sort of growing suspicion of foreigners at the time. And so they, they played into that with the with their disinformation campaigns. And so a lot of, you know, a lot of the techniques that we observe today were also used by the Romans in terms of fighting for public opinion. And so that, you know, that I think was the interesting part to me about that about that case study. And even I mean, this is contested, but they fabricated, you know, as we know that, um, you know, Antony had a, from the famous sort of Shakespeare adaptation, Antony and, and Cleopatra uh, died by suicide, but he left a, a will and Augustus tried to spin this will as ultimate evidence that he wasn't a true Roman because, you know, he wanted to leave um, some of his legacy to, uh, to Cleopatra. And that ultimately convinced the, um, the senators that, uh, that Augustus should you know, should become the true the, the true ruler of um, of what was then the Roman Empire. John and I were talking about this before, and, and we really both appreciate this historization. But I wonder, what is it about now that is so different from, yeah. from you know, whether it's during World War II or ancient Rome? What, what makes it so potent now? 
And so I think there's a few factors. It's about the speed with which information can travel and also the medium through which it reaches us. So I do some calculations based on the best historic estimates of how long it would take in the Roman courier system to, to spread a message from one end to the other. Um, and, you know, at best, it would have taken a week by horse um, if they didn't take breaks to, to spread a message. Whereas now, and I calculate this in the book, if if you send a message to your WhatsApp group, which can have a, a maximum of 20 people, and they forward it to another group of a maximum to 20 people, and even accounting for the limits that WhatsApp has placed on forwarding, you can reach, you know, millions of people within the split of a second. We looked at some research that investigated the diffusion of misinformation online. We know that not always, but in many cases, misinformation can spread faster, further, and deeper than true information. It reaches more people on average than factual information, and it can take, and I, I mentioned that in the book, you know, the, uh, the old saying from, which again is also debated as to who said this, that, uh, you know, uh, a lie can make its way halfway around the world before the truth even has a chance to put its pants on, um, or in the UK, shoes on, or whatever the variation of this, uh, this saying is. Uh, and it's interesting that studies do show um, that a lie can make its way around, you know, social media and millions of people around the world before the truth even has a chance to, to put its shoes on. Um, and so that I think is different. But then also the ways in which misinformation is delivered now online. So we have micro targeting, which allows for the efficient distribution of, of fake news. And so we can scrape people's digital online footprints and then target messages at them uh, in a way that tries to maximize persuasion potential and efficiency and those tools weren't you know weren't available back then the medium itself is also different think about ai generated images deep fakes right it's becoming technology is making it much more tricky for people to discern what's true um, and what's false um, and so we're trying to deal with all of these technological advancements i think that make both the spread and identification uh, of, of of fake news much more difficult there's also much more of it just the volume of it and we can talk about exposure does not equal infection, but you know there's just a tremendous amount of content available. The the barrier to entry, um, with the rise of the internet, the barrier to entry has been reduced. Anyone can now be a producer of news and and information, and so people are bombarded with it. And I think that's really what what's the difference. And what concerns people about post truth, I think, is that at the same time we have unprecedented access to the facts. With you know, it's just one Google search away, but somehow. Uh, we're in the situation where people are not necessarily seeking out the uh, the facts, and that's kind of the paradox, I think, of uh, of of having to deal with with these new technologies that we're not always using it uh, in in the public interest, but rather uh, to, to target people and potentially undermine elections and public health, and and so that's you know that's of interest to me. You're listening to Stats and Stories, and today we're talking to University of Cambridge's Sander Vanderlinden about his new book, Foolproof. You know, as, as you were talking about that, I, I found myself thinking about other conversations we've had in the past about things like news deserts, where some of the local coverage of, of news and communities is disappearing. And so there's, there's now becoming this concentration of, of source, or that you have to go to common source to get this. So, so there's, there's been a loss of some of those, those types of data sources and news sources at the same time where there's this proliferation of, of, of other places you might find information. But, but ultimately, it, it seems that it comes down to a question of discernment. You know, what, what is it that, that can help people as they are looking at these sources to, to do and, and achieve some of the things that you described? I mean, you've, you talked about in your antigen tips 
for the spread of misinformation. You had mentioned this idea of micro-targeting and awareness of that as one of the, you know, that's one of the ways that you sort of say, well, gee, this could be happening. Or, or other ways, thinking about the idea of whether or not you're in, living in an echo chamber or being, you know, receiving some filter bubbling of what you've done. Can, can you kind of help us think about uh, skills or tools for discernment of source of information? Yeah, you mean in terms of the, the, the source of the outlet? Or, yeah, or yeah. So if I'm looking for information about this, you know, about something, you know, about, about foolproof, this new book I've heard about, yeah. and I go, I go out there and I, I do a search for it, and I'm going to get a whole yeah. bunch of, of, of returns on this. You know, right. how, what, what, kind of, what kind of guidance might you give, give me to think about the, 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 the best sources for trying to, uh, to, to you know, investigate, to dive into, to learn more about something? Yeah, well, one of the things that, you know, I, I mentioned in the book that I think is important is, is for people to try to look at the, the presence or absence of, of common manipulation techniques. Um, and so when we're looking for things online, things are often presented, you know, I'm not talking about the, the stuff that's obviously false, like, you know, flat earth or, or things like that. But, you know, there's often these subtle manipulation techniques that are used to influence people and we're not always aware of those people tend to think oh you know i'm not going to be duped by by flat earth but but that's not you know what we're talking about it's it's the use of emotions to try to influence people so this could be fear mongering or creating outrage polarizing headlines so framing things just a little bit so that it pits two groups against each other to get people riled up uh, about a topic or creating a cloud of doubt around mainstream narratives to to, you know, instill conspiratorial forms of thinking in, in people uh, or, uh, you know, trolling people by, uh, you know, sometimes headlines kind of troll people and that's that's clickbait or what we call discrediting. Um, and these are often rhetorical techniques that are used to discredit the person rather than the argument. And there's a whole range of these techniques that we focus on. Others include false dilemmas. So, you know, presenting people with two options and pretending there's only two options while in fact there's more. So taking out the nuance out of the situation or scapegoating groups. And what we try to do is, is help people identify those techniques so when they come across specific content, they can make up their own minds. And this is important, I think, because you know sometimes credible outlets can unwittingly amplify misinformation and the source won't necessarily help you there. Um, and that's why I think you know operating at the level of what is the level of manipulation present here, both as a function of the content, maybe also in terms of political bias. I mean, we should also remember that every outlet has some political bias, and that's totally fine, but we should try to keep that in mind. So what's the level of manipulation? What's the level of bias? And then people can be empowered to, to make their own judgment. So for example, just to give you a specific example, I mean, you can tell me what you think about this headline, but the, the Chicago Tribune reposted this story, um, during the pandemic, healthy doctor died two weeks after getting COVID vaccine. CDC is investigating why. Now, the Chicago Tribune is a reputable outlet. If you look at independent fact checkers, I mean, that's that's the you know the source is good. They're not outright lying. I mean, a healthy doctor did die two weeks after getting the COVID vaccine. But in terms of statistics here, right? What, what's happening here is that correlation is is meant is framed in a way to imply causation, and uh, there was no evidence at the time. Uh, that these two events had anything to do with each other. And so that could be construed as misleading um, uh, and trying to influence people. It was one of the most shared stories on Facebook. It became very prominent in anti-vax groups. And so that's where I think that, you know, we can't just say that that's false, 
but people might want to keep in mind that there's a technique, a framing technique that's used to influence their opinion on vaccinations and then make up their own mind about how they feel about a headline like that. Um, so that's kind of where where we're going with uh, with this particular approach. You know, when I talk to people about this and about misinformation and disinformation, you know, one people one thing they come back with me is often like if they would just use their brains, they would figure out what's true. But in the book, you talk about how actually our brains are not necessarily always going to seek out what is the the kernel of truth. So could you talk about sort of how our brains function in this and what sort of might drive us to actually be taken by some of this misinformation we see? Yeah, I think there's certain things that are pretty universal about the brain. I mean, it's a big word, but, but um, you know, a lot of people are susceptible to this. And that's that's, you know, most people rely on what we call a truth bias, which is the fact that, you know, most of the time we just assume that stuff is true. Um, for, and from an evolutionary standpoint, that kind of makes sense because, you know, uh, people aren't lying to us constantly all of the time, at least didn't used to be the case. Right. Uh, um, and so <laughs> and, and so, you know, because you're bombarded by so much information, you have to be selective. So you can't stop and think about every piece of information analytically. So it makes sense to assume that most of the things people are telling you are probably true. But then when you shift to environments where the base rate of misinformation is much higher or misleading information like social media, applying such a heuristic can lead you astray. Um, and that's, I think, where, where things get tricky. Um, there's other related phenomena like illusory truth, which is the simple finding that the more often you repeat a claim, the more likely people are to think it's true. And this is very uh, pernicious in the sense that the brain uses fluency as an indicator for, for a truth signal. And so fluency is about the ease with which something is processed. And the faster you can process something, the, the more fluent it is, and so the more likely the brain is to think that there's some truth value to it. So stuff you've heard before is fluent because you know it, you can process it faster and so on, whereas complex, you know, new science, new stories that you haven't heard before are complex, it slows you down, and so it doesn't operate in, in the same way. And manipulators can take advantage of that. So if I do a quick test with you guys, I mean, you know, uh, <laughs> yeah, you know, um, and so, you know, Moses could take two animals, you know, on the ark. Uh, and so uh, is that correct or, or not? I'm not going to answer because I've read this I, part of I the book. I read this book, too. <laughs> uh, okay, not, okay. You're not going to get so, me, Noah. <laughs> uh, okay, there, there you go. There you go. So most, most people say in the biblical story, oh, yeah, there were two animals of each kind, right? But no, it was Noah, actually. Uh, um, and, so, and so, you know, uh, what happens here is that Prior knowledge that people have is actually not activated in the moment. And so people are not accessing it when trying to discern things. And so that's why knowledge doesn't always protect you from being duped by, by misinformation. And that's, I think, a very important finding because we assume that just general education is going to help people. And I'm sure that it's good and, and helpful in some aspects, but it's no guarantee that people are not going to be duped by specific info. And um, yeah, the last thing I'll say is that, you know, aside from these these general cognitive mechanisms. Um, and as far as psychology goes, you know, universal is a big word, but I think our estimates say that up to up to 75% of people, even kids are susceptible to, to things like illusory truth. But there are also motivational factors, right? We're a social species, people want things to be true, because they belong to a certain group or a political party, or they have spiritual, religious or other motives that um, leads them to selectively attend and spread information about a particular topic. And that's obviously a big part of, of why we see the spread of uh, misinformation. In fact, we know from our studies where we tried to predict the virality of online content on Twitter and Facebook from millions of posts, 
that dunking on the other side is is what gets rewards on social media and so you know it's also about the the social incentives there you know when 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 i think about the 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 model this image of virality and then i start thinking about the the inoculation and vaccines i i, I find myself I, I mean clearly we're we're i hope we're post covid but but as we think about this you know yeah. we we think about it as the is the vaccine was rolled out originally it was rolled out to the most susceptible populations eventually it went it went across all ages including the very young to protect them and and not only that there was kind of a period of time where it was thought to be effective but then boosters were needed so so i was just wondering if you could just reflect a little bit upon you know when when do we start introducing these these types of ideas or when are, when would it be effective to start helping to to have this inoculation and and what was a what would a booster look like for for us yeah so all of the analogies i think kind of ring true for the psychological vaccine uh, as well so you know generally you know it, it would be ideal to roll them out to the people who are most um uh, susceptible right so who are these people you know people who tend to be more politically extreme people who are spend more time on getting their news from social media, people who are more uh, generally paranoid about societal uh, affairs, uh, people who are low in actively open-minded thinking, which is um, something that relates to how flexible you are with regards to evidence and being open to changing your mind, and it's kind of a form of, of cognitive rigidity. So people who are more extreme are not very flexible in their thinking. But where, you know, how can you get the vaccine to those types of individuals and you know as obviously as scientists we're not going out there and 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 implementing this but we have found you know partnering with the world health organization or the united nations you know during crisis situations they can help uh target our interventions at people um whom they you know they might find uh could benefit from them uh the most another solution is um to team up with some of the organizations that kind of run a lot of uh the flow of information in society. So we've decided to team up with with Google, who owns uh, YouTube, as you as you might know. Um, and one of the ways in which they thought this could be helpful was, you know, they said if you really want to scale this approach, um, what if we put some animated videos that um, that we created in the ad spaces on on YouTube? You know, those annoying ads on YouTube, and that that's where the where the pre bunk would go. And I love this idea because it's, instead of you know. The, the, the sort of ads that are used usually to boost uh, profits for, um, for for companies, we could we could hijack it for science and test people in the ad space after they've been exposed to these videos. We did some testing with them and it took years for them to, to actually do this. But, um, you know, of course, they wanted everything to be neutral. And I think that's important, too. So, you know, our false dilemma kind of pre-bunk goes something like this. Uh, are you guys Star Wars fans or not really? And so, and yeah, yeah there we go. So the, you know, the false dilemma... Uh, the weakened dose, the pre-bunk here is not something real about, you know, a hot topic issue, hot button sort of issue, but it's a clip from Re Revenge of the Sith. And so you have Obi-Wan uh, Kenobi talking to Anakin Skywalker, who says, you know, if you're not with me, you're my enemy. And then Obi-Wan replies, only a Sith deals in, in absolutes. And then the narrator says, you know, you know, who wants to be a Sith, right? And don't use these <laughs> techniques. Um, um, and that's that's kind of the the vaccine, sort of speak, in that context. And and uh, yeah, that was great for YouTube audience. But the critical thing here is that YouTube they haven't done this, uh, but the results were you know they're, they're, they were smaller than the lab because you know people are distracted on YouTube. But we wanted it to be a real test, and um, you know they scaled this across millions of people. But ultimately, what I think they could do is make them non-skippable in the ad space across billions of people, so that we don't have this 
problem that we have to find and target people, but they could just expose everyone in one go uh, and make it non, non-optional. I mean, they haven't done this, but um, Google is certainly trying to get them excited about, about, the, about the research. I mean, we work with the research arm of Google, right? And so, um, and so that's, that's kind of where, where we're headed. And then we do know that it does wane over time. I and mean, so our test period, there was an average delay of, uh, of 18 hours between test and exposure. But we know from our own research that if you do nothing, uh, the, the vaccine does wane over time, whether it's, it's, it's weeks or, or months. And so you need to boost people. And so you ask, what, is, what does a booster look like? Um, it turns out it doesn't have to be the whole treatment again. You could show people some slides. Um, you could show them uh, a, a, a shorter version of the video. That's kind of what we did in some of our boosters, like a, a, just a brief segment of the video. You could uh, have them play a game. It could be anything. The crucial thing that we uncovered is that it's about motivation and memory. People lose motivation to want to defend themselves and also they forget some of the lessons. And so what you need to boost are, are these two processes in some shape or form. Sander, given all of this work that you've done, how optimistic are you for the future around this issue of misinformation? Yeah, it's interesting. A lot of, uh, a lot of journalists I talk to seem pretty pessimistic uh, and, and they, you know, they're pretty cynical and they're asking me how optimistic I am. And uh, my students always say that I'm an eternal uh, optimist. And I don't, I don't know if that, I think that's because you know, I spend a significant portion of my time working on solutions, which makes me optimistic. I certainly don't think that pre-bunking or inoculation is the, the silver bullet that's going to fix everything. But but I, I do see some hope there in, in the way that it's being adopted and rolled out that we have we're starting to have a good first line of defense. And then obviously fact checking and debunking are, are important, too. And we need more coordination in the sense that, you know, Obviously, we want to. We want this to be part of educational curriculums. Have it be adopted in schools. Have this, you know, generally roll out critical thinking skills as it pertains to to, to digital literacy specifically. Um, uh, but I'm optimistic that that we can that we can get there. Um, you know, I think we're in a very toxic climate right now about you know people being worried about being told what to believe. I think what we need to focus on is maybe not telling people what they need to believe, but giving empowering them to discern manipulation techniques so that people can make up their their own mind about evidence and giving people those skills i think is the most important thing we can do but in order for that to work we need to roll it out widely and and institutionalize it and and get bipartisan support for those initiatives so that's what i try to spend my time doing and that's what makes me optimistic there's certainly things that make me less optimistic like you know Twitter was one of the organizations that was an uh, early adopter of, of the pre-bunking initiative during elections, for example. But, you know, Musk fired the whole pre-bunking team. Um, and so we're taking a few steps back there. Um, so, you know, you win some, you lose some. But overall, um, I stay optimistic. I do see challenges with AI-generated content, deepfakes. It's going gonna, it's gonna to get more difficult. Um, but, you know, what we do is we're always trying to think ahead of the next challenge and inoculating people against that. And that's how that's kind of how I stay optimistic, I think. Well, Sander, thank you so much for joining us today to talk, to talk about foolproof. It was really been, I think we probably could have asked you another half hour. It, of it was great. You may be, we may have you back for a fourth time. I mean, <laughs> it's always fun to talk with you, Sander. Same, same. Questions are, are, are great. Hopefully I didn't rant on for too long, but um, 
you know. You were brilliant. (laughs) Stats and Stories is a partnership between Miami University's Departments of Statistics and Media, Journalism, and Film and the American Statistical Association. You can follow us on Twitter at Stats and Stories, Apple Podcasts, or other places where you find podcasts. If you'd like to share your thoughts on the program, send your email to statsandstories at miamioh.edu or check us out at statsandstories.net. Be sure to listen for future editions of Stats and Stories where we discuss the statistics behind the stories and the stories behind the statistics. Thank you.